Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right, the last couple weeks, we have been doing shows related to my upcoming book. Uh, the title keeps changing, but I'm very happy with the current one, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Uh, no subtitle yet, but you can get it on Amazon.com. Just search for The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and it should be delivered November 13th. Anyway, this week, I've been working on fossil fuels and environment, so I decided to invite on, unfortunately he accepted, one of the world's leading scholars in this area, Stephen Hayward. Now, Steve is the author of what's called the Almanac of Environmental Trends, which if you, if you Google that, or uh, we'll have it on, on the website, uh, is a great resource to show actual objective big picture statistics about what's happened to um, environmental cleanliness, environmental health, instead of just you know, anecdotal, oh, there was an oil spill, therefore fossil fuels are ruining our environment. So great resource, uh, very excited to have him on the program. Uh, Steve is currently a visiting scholar at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He has been at the American Enterprise Institute, the Pacific Research Institute. If you enter in Stephen Hayward on Amazon, you'll see he's written about every conceivable subject. Uh, but is quite encyclopedic on energy, and that's why he's here, as well as environmental trends, I should say, that's why he's here today. So, on the other side, we will have Stephen Hayward on fossil fuels and our environment. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Stephen Hayward. Stephen, welcome to Power Hour. Hi, I'm glad to be with you. All right. This week, uh, as I've told listeners, every every week um, for the next 10 weeks, I'm writing one chapter of my book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. This week, I'm writing my environment chapter. So my first request was from my booker was to talk to you since you've written The Almanac of Environmental Trends, which is one of the most useful books uh, on, this, on this subject. And we'll talk about that later. But I want to jump back in history and start with the question before fossil fuels. You know, in those wonderful idyllic times when we only use renewable energy from the sun and the ground, what was the environment like for the average human being? Well, to take it at its very most important terms, the um, uh, maybe maybe the old phrase from Hobbes is right: uh, "Life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short." I mean, for hundreds of years, average life expectancy was 40 years or less, and that was in Europe and what were thought to be the most advanced countries, right? Uh, and uh, look, to make this very simple, it was the Industrial Revolution, at the heart of which is cheap and affordable uh, and abundant energy. That's what has allowed us in the last 100 plus years to double the lifespan of everybody's advanced countries and increasingly in developing countries too. Uh, this, should, this is not rocket science, uh, and yet, uh, you know, the opponents of fossil fuels, the opponents of energy generally uh, 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 make ground on the fact that people simply take these advances for granted. I mean, no one's really alive today who remembers a 40-year lifespan and, and, uh, and very high disease rates. Uh, you know, it used to be when we heated ourselves, um, uh, even with wood, um, cow dung, which people still do in the developing world in too many places, uh, you know, respiratory disease rates were about 10 times higher than they are today. And nobody has any living memory of this, and so we take this for granted and believe all kinds of fantasies about how we can do without cheap energy. Yeah, and that's, that's why, that's why things like this show and your work exist. And one, one thing I like to do is as much as possible, make it, it concrete for people because it, we're not taught in the education. I mean, I remember going up in the, growing up in the, fortunately not the DC school system, but the Montgomery County, Maryland school system, which was supposedly good, but I, I learned nothing about the benefits of industrialization. All I learned was how industrialization is messing everything up. So let's, let's just take the realm of 
air and water quality and filth. What is it like for somebody pre-industrial? Because we're led to believe that, oh, well, just everything is clean and you don't have all these smokestacks bothering you. <laughs> uh, you know, if you really want to provoke uh, sort of a conventional or what I sometimes call know-nothing environmentalist today, point out to them that the, uh, the arrival of the internal combustion engine in the automobile was a huge environmental advance and improvement over what came before it. You know, nowadays environmentalists think cars are just rolling cigarettes, right, or worse. <laughs> uh, well, you know, what I like to point out is um, uh, you go to New York 110 years ago, around the year 1900, the primary mode of transportation uh, for individuals and for goods in the city were horses. And, you know, the numbers are, we don't know the exact numbers, but it was something like 50 or 60,000 horses in New York City, each producing about 30 pounds of manure a day uh, and 20 gallons of urine at a time when the only pollution control technology was a broom. And that's one reason why the air was really bad there is, you know, that would, in the summertime it would dry out in the dust. Um, I found once a, uh, I should send this to you, if you, uh, if you send me an email, I'll, um, remind me, I'll do this. I found an article from Scientific American from August of 1900. And, you know, cars were on the distant horizon, um, the way today Google Glasses, I suppose, are on our, our horizon, right? And it said, not until the automobile replaces the horse-drawn carriage are we going to be able to reduce this dreadful pollution from horse manure around the streets. And nobody understands that now. And there's a second part to that story, by the way. In addition to just the effect it had uh, of replacing horses with cars uh, uh, in places like New York or Philadelphia, Washington, Boston, um, at that time, and there's statistics on this, we used almost uh, 100 million acres of land to grow feed for our draft animals. In other words, for horses to haul things around. And so one of the reasons that forest lands have come back, especially in the Northeast, and you know, we have a lot more forest land than we had 100 years ago, is because we're, a lot of that land we used to grow uh, feed for, cow, uh, for uh, horses has now gone back to forest land because we don't need to do that anymore. When you have a concentrated energy source, uh, whether it's coal, fuel oil, gasoline, natural gas, that generates a lot of energy from a small amount, uh, guess what? There's a positive trade-off for nature involved in that. That's something that almost no environmentalist knows, um, and of course that means the wider public doesn't know it either. I don't know if I'm charitable enough to think they don't know it. I mean, there's a certain amount of common sense in knowing that where wood comes from, and that if yes, you were right. using, if you were running out of wood, that means you were running out of trees, and that coal isn't a tree, and that it's right. underground, and that. Um, but so let, let's 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 play a little more devil's advocate here. So we've got we've got the city, and so someone will say, okay, we've got all this manure. And I it's, I was reading today just about the presence of pigs in cities, and just cities being overrun by pigs, and how they were tolerated in some ways because they would eat garbage. And what are people going to do with garbage? <laughs> but then that's okay. That's just these evil industrialists, but what about the idyllic life on the farm where your horse is not this thing that you necessarily are suffering from, but you're just riding around like, uh, you know, some, like you're riding Black Beauty uh, along the plain? <laughs> well, I mean, it, there's a whole lot to be said about that. Uh, first of all, uh, one of the reasons we don't have pigsties in the middle of cities anymore that were smelly is because we can now raise our livestock away from the city and transport, um, uh, you know, the, the meats and, and, and dairy products uh, because we have cheap energy. And also we can refrigerate it because of electricity. Now, one reason you had to have pigs and slaughterhouses close by the cities is because you couldn't do that. And that's one part of the story. The part about farm life, um, let's step back to a slightly wider view for half a moment here. You know, I, I sometimes like to talk to students in introducing these subjects by saying, isn't it interesting that we still – evaluate modern motor cars by their horsepower, right? You, you want a flashy Camaro or Mustang that has 320 horsepower or something. Most people don't know what a horsepower is. I had to look it up originally, but I got curious about this. Why is that a unit of energy we still use um, to measure the potency of something? Well, a horse, which you know, weigh, uh, weighs generally 10 times as much as a human being, could do about 100 times the work of a human being. I mean, you know, it, it had an odd way, great energy density. And, you know, there's a reason why we gave up plowing fields uh, by hand, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and used horses instead, because horses could do a whole lot more than a human being could for a lot longer, right? Well, now substitute a tractor for a horse, and suddenly you don't have to be out on the fields almost literally seven days a week, 
from sundown to sunset and with very low productivity agriculture. Now, uh, that's one reason why people are able to move from farms into cities and generally improve their standards of living. So everybody's standard of living is better from uh, the, the impact of higher density energy on farms. Farmers' lives are better and easier and more productive, and the people who are able to move off of farms because they were doing such backbreaking work can take up other lines of work in cities. I love the statistic about the horses, thinking about the, or, the horse's uh, energy density or power density. It's a good, the ten, 10 times is a nice, nice round number for it. Do you know offhand what, what the difference between it? Well, I guess, I don't know that the horsepower exactly represents the horse. I've heard that it's either slightly too big or slightly too small, but what, what's the tractor's horsepower? Well, I, you know, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's, there's engine horsepower. That wouldn't be the same necessarily as, as, you know, the actual comparison of what a horse-drawn plow could do in a day compared to what a tractor could do in a day. I'll bet, I'll bet the horsepower is not really the right measure of comparison there. But, you know, a horse, uh, there's two things about why horsepower is really a, an odd measurement is, uh, you know, horses can accelerate. Uh, I mean, even if you can put 300 horses in front of a car or an SUV, they can't go zero to 60 in eight seconds, right? So there's the acceleration aspect of it that is lost in this comparison. Um, and a tractor can go for a lot longer than a horse. I mean, horses can do more than a human, but they get tired too and have to rest and eat some oats. Whereas a tractor, you can run as long as you can sit on it and run it and refuel it, right? And so they can do immensely more than a horse. One, one point that you raised, at least in my mind, that I, I hadn't thought of, but is, is I want to go into a little because it's fascinating, is just the the amount of waste that is generated in what we would call the you know basic necessary human activities so and and you gave the example of food so in order to just eat to do the the basic thing that we need to do to survive there's just this enormous challenge of yeah well I may, I'll have I'll have you go into it just what's the challenge of that and what's what's all the waste that you that we had to deal with, because today it's easy, right? I just go to the grocery store, buy something, eat it. If I don't want some of it, throw it in the trash. It's amazing. Yeah. But it wasn't yeah, right. like that. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at. I mean, it, it, if you mean the uh, trade-offs between sort of low-tech ways of doing a food supply and the way we do it today, I mean, there's two or three ways of looking at that. One is, is that um, people say, oh, you know, wasteful packaging and supermarkets and you know, all kinds of, you know, variety of complaints that are kind of strange. turns out that our food waste, if you just think of food we don't consume, that gets thrown out because it's spoiled or we don't want it or whatever, it's actually much lower than in poor countries. Um, and, and that's precisely because we do have packaging and refrigeration and things of that kind. Um, we probably have a lot less waste in the whole supply chain of food uh, for some of the reasons I mentioned. We can refrigerate it, we can keep it for longer, we can transport it longer distances. Um, you know, things like aseptic packaging make it possible to um, uh, package milk products that will last on the shelf for months, for example. Um, and so this is counterintuitive. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, at least for environmentalists, it's counterintuitive. A lot of them people think that modern industrial society means more waste. As a general matter, it actually usually means less waste. Uh, and that, again, is a hard thing to get across sometimes. Well, I guess w well, part of what's impressive uh, about it is that, I mean, in a sense, if you're producing more, there's more residual, and yet we're able to produce more and, as Pierre Desrochers would say, you know, turn that waste into wealth such that the amount of harmful waste we experience is so much less. Well, yes, that's right. And, you know, I'm going to give you sort of one really narrow example of the efficiency of, uh, of uh, you know, advanced industrial society. And, and that's something I know a little bit about. It, it's walnuts. Okay, so walnuts are a popular nut for people to have, and, you know, they come in jars and all the rest of that. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure people in the developing world eat walnuts too, but generally they just throw the shells away because that's a pure waste product. In this country, there's a huge secondary market for walnut shells, and oddly enough, it's often used in some waste energy projects because you can burn them, <laughs> and they burn pretty well. And so an awful lot of walnut growers in California that I know, um, you know, they sell their almonds to Blue Di or uh, sorry, their walnuts to Blue Diamond or one of the, the you know, <laughs> the nut houses, so to speak, uh, and they sell their shells to somebody else, and so they get more out of the resource. Yeah, this, I mean, the amount of... Um... Yeah, Pierre's been on the show a couple of times and just he has, he has a lot of work on this and just the amount of ingenuity going back to, say, coal tar and, of course, the whole American oil industry 
using the residual that you know originally from kerosene and making every you know something that benefits every product in our life is just just unbelievable and nobody nobody tells that story right um right. so you mentioned earlier the issue of of you, you gave that just uh, i keep going back to the example of the waste in new york because i'm thinking about i guess the thing that struck me was you mentioned the livestock in new york and i just don't think of having livestock in new york city but they must have had livestock in new york city right well, yeah, I don't, you know, I've never looked closely at sort of the data on that, but, you know, we know that um, what now is, uh, uh, you know, Harlem and parts of upper Manhattan, whereas recently as the 1890s, it still had a lot of open fields and, you know, what they would call mixed use, as you say, as some livestock. Um, and then intermittently throughout the city, you would have a little area of bare ground where some pigs might be running around. And, uh, yeah, today people would just be appalled if they saw that. I mean, can you imagine New Yorkers today having <laughs> one look at that? They'd freak out about it. Um, and you know, we we tend again. It's another thing that's easily forgotten, and that uh, we don't understand what technological progress and uh, and industrialization has meant for solving. It could, that could be a health problem, right? Um, they could be vectors for all kinds. And it was smelly, right? Um, and and uh, so I, I mean, uh, you know, I really wish someone could invent a time machine. And take your, you know, average liberal environmentalist or sentimentalist, sometimes I call them, and send them back in time to one of these places. I think it would take about 60 seconds for people to completely change their mind about how we live today and why it's and why it's obviously superior. Yeah, I, I've done a thought experiment before where I I'll tell audiences, you know, because we take it for granted that fossil fuels have ruined our environment. I say, okay, well, let's take someone from 300 years ago, before, you know, right when the new Cummins steam engine is invented. You bring him to our environment and say which is better. Like, he wouldn't think that was a question. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> so right. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm not much of a social psychologist, but I gather there's been some work on you know over the years in various ways that um, you know maybe this is simply a, an aspect of ingratitude that you that you find among some people. I mean, I don't, you know, you and I think alike on these things. We're kind of amazed at what the world has done. Um, and a lot of people, I don't know, they, they actually kind of resent it in some ways. Um, and as I say, if you put them in, uh, you know, if you could transport them back to one day in the life of an average you know, working class person in London in 1750, it would cure them of that in a hurry. But it, it's hard to make, sometimes people are immune to rational appeals about these things. Well, leaving aside the psychology, we do have one, one frame of reference which I wanted to ask about, which is the undeveloped world. What's I mean, which has many of the same problems that we had when we were undeveloped. What's what's environment like there in terms of filth, air, water? Yeah, well, you know, it depends on where you go, but there, there's some good stories about this uh, on, on sort of the general level. But, um, you know, large parts of Africa, uh, in India, especially the poorest parts where people burn animal dung for heat and create terrible indoor air pollution and, you know, have a lot of respiratory problems. And, and you know, really high child mortality and short lifespans. And um, one of the things that people in, from, you know, American Europe don't understand, and this came up in the climate negotiations in Kyoto, is, um, uh, uh, you know, Al Gore goes off to Kyoto in 1998, whenever it was at the climax of that, and was begging the Indians and the Chinese, India Indians, I guess I should say, and the Chinese to please agree to come under the Kyoto umbrella of emissions constraints. And they both said no. And the Indians told him, I'm told from career State Department people who are in the room, uh, look, uh, you people in America and in Europe, you guys got rich and prosperous on fossil fuels. Now it's our turn. When we're as rich as you, then we'll talk to you about energy constraints. And the Chinese said something similar. They said, we don't understand you Americans. You expect us to be poor forever. Uh, and what the Indians and the Chinese understand is, is for all the problems of pollution that you have when you're industrializing rapidly and using energy, sometimes without the most expensive and advanced emissions controls like we have, the trade-offs are still massively positive for them. I mean, in, uh, in China in the last 25 years, I think the number is something like four or 500 million people have been brought out of abject poverty in the middle-class life. And yeah, they don't like the smog and the bad air. On the other hand, everybody's living better. And they're going to solve that problem next, by the way. They're going to follow our development trajectory probably faster. That is to say, you know, they'll be able to leapfrog over us in a lot of emissions technology, so will India. And so their story in the long run is actually maybe going to be better than ours. Right now, it's very hard to see that, and it's really politically incorrect to say something like that. 
But for the people who live there and who govern those countries, it's easy decision for them to make that it's more important and more valuable for them to grow and grow with cheap energy than it is to chase after these phantoms of expensive solar power that we don't even deploy on a very large scale. Right. So if you look at look at uh, sometimes I like to think of it as we're told, you know, my generation and I'm 33 years old. You know, my generation is told we're responsible for the future. We need to get us off uh, fossil fuels. But but they mean drastic, immediate uh, reductions. And I think, well, you know, reading the literature, my parents had the same decision as did the Chinese and the Indians. And I'm so glad they did not do that. And I'm thinking of of in particular the developed world. I mean, talk about to make it just concrete. What does it mean? What did it mean for an individual Chinese peasant to be able to go into the city and live in a fossil fueled economy versus not having that option at all? Oh, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's a sort of obviously huge. Um, an, an American might not see that unless they actually travel to rural China and rural India and see it and talk to people. Um, you, you know, you can actually see this not just there. You can see it some in Latin America if you understand what you're looking at. You know, the average American goes to Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo, and what they see are the big slums. Uh, they call them favelas in Brazil, right? And, and it is the people who've mostly moved from the countryside into the city, and it looks dreadful to us, and I suppose in some sense it is, but to them it's a vast improvement. And in many cases they have electricity for the first time. Often they're sort of stealing it from the grid, and that's kind of an interesting story. Uh, and they're developing these little underground economies, and they're moving up really fast. If you actually can take a moving picture of it and it takes some imagination, what you're really seeing is a whole lot of poor people moving into the lower rungs of the middle class really fast. And we come from you know, nice middle class American suburbs and we can't see that because our experience is so different. Um, I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. Um, it you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of others that are, that are escaping me right now. They'll probably come back to my mind if we keep going. Well, someone would, a- someone would ask, because the the whole narrative on life is so focused on all we need to be concerned about is not having industrial smoke ever inhaled by us, that it's inconceivable to someone that somebody would prefer a life with industrial smoke, which of course many, many hundreds of millions do. That's why they go into into cities. So what Well, you know, we yeah, well, we once did too. Uh you know, it it, it turns out that if you go back to well, you think about what I sometimes jokingly call socialist realist art from the New Deal era, right? It was always uh, uh, you know, celebrating the workers building factories. And once upon a time for liberalism, and I think this is one of the things that's changed in modern American liberalism, once in a while, belching smokestacks was a celebrated sign of progress for American liberalism because that meant jobs for the working man, good jobs, unionized jobs, right, and prosperity for the neighborhood. And, and you know, now it doesn't, and you know, that, that's a long story why that's happened. Um, but, but to get back to your broader question, it seems to me that, and you think about the, the, um, the slogan that's very popular now, sustainability, right, sustainable development. And, you know, it, I'm always asking for a precise definition of, you know, what does that actually mean in practice? And the, the general definition, which the UN actually advertises, is meeting our own needs without compromising the needs of future generations to meet theirs. Now, you just said something interesting a minute ago about how, thank God, your parents did do, or grandparents didn't do all the silly things that people are telling us we ought to do today. Uh, why? Because uh, we're able to meet our needs today precisely because of those decisions 100 years ago and the incremental decisions all along the way to grow, right? Um, and so, you know, this idea of sustainable development is really sort of code for, you know, what? Use less or, you know, whatever. There's two ways I think that that should be broken uh, into uh, constituent parts. One is, is it does make some sense to say if you're using some groundwater faster than it recharges, that's unsustainable. That's not that hard to figure out. If you're cutting down trees faster than they grow, uh, then you know, you're going to run out of trees. That's not hard to figure out. And actually, those are two problems we've generally fixed in this country if you look at the data. It gets a little trickier when you think about uh, oil uh, or uh, uh, you know, non-renewable resources because one unit used is one less to be had at some point in the future. And so you say, well, we should conserve it then. Well, that's not entirely clear. That's not automatic at all. Um, and my example I always use is, okay, take a gallon of gas. Uh, you put it in the gas tank of somebody who drives off to Google or a pharmaceutical company who's working on inventing a new pharmaceutical that's going to extend lifespans or cure Alzheimer's. Or, you know, you speculate on what kind of an innovation might be coming from the person who drives to work in his fossil fuel car in the morning. 
that's a positive trade-off for the world, right? That, that's a gallon of gas extremely well used that adds to our sustainable capacity to meet our needs in the future. So that's why it's not even obvious that non-renewable resources should be automatically conserved according to some uh, you know, general scheme that people want us to have. And I'll say that the other gallon of gas, if it's put in the tank of a bureaucrat to go off to the EPA and regulate the world, that's probably not a well-used gallon of gas. That's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I'll, I'll avoid going on too much of a, of a rant about this, but my, my view is that, and my whole background here is in, in philosophy, so I know, I knew what was wrong with environmentalism before I knew what was right with energy. <laughs> and uh, so that was helpful, though, in analyzing how they think about energy and, and sustainable renewable I think are uh, wrong I mean they're I think they're immoral ideals because the essence of them is repetition the idea that we should do something the essence of what makes something good is that we can do it over and over mindlessly that we don't have to figure out anything new and yet the whole progression of capitalism is figuring out new and better ways of turning useless raw materials into new resources so the gallon of gas I use to go to jujitsu class or do whatever the hell I want that was create that value was created by somebody that was worthless ooze before that and he gets credit for it I thank him for it and I pay him for it um, but you know we're I, I, for me the ideal is a progressive society where and not in the not in the anti-capitalist sense but in the pro-progress sense and that's if that were the ideal people would both appreciate the past and look to the future and be excited by every new fossil fuel technology and be excited by say the upside of nuclear instead of picking the least dense, least reliable, historically failed sources of energy and calling that a future. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very well put. And, and you know, the, the other aspect of the simplicity of this is that most of our so-called renewable technologies are actually have a lot of adverse environmental trade-offs. They're not even that renewable. People say wind is free and the sun is free. And that's true, except it leaves out of account how difficult and how resource intensive it is to capture that energy, right? I mean, you know, windmills need a lot of steel and rare metals. Same with solar panels that only last about 20 years. Um, and that's why their costs are actually shockingly high. Uh, and then don't, you know, don't get a starter on ethanol, right? Yeah, you can grow corn, but uh, you know, the, the trade-offs of that are just dreadful. So I, I like to joke sometimes, and this is really for older listeners, the only, truly, uh, the only energy source that truly had no adverse environmental impacts uh, was that a bicycle that Gilligan used to ride on the island to power the professor's radio, if you've ever seen the reruns. And even that's a joke, because you had to feed Gilligan bananas. <laughs> <Right>? So, <laughs> uh, you know, the idea that you can have an energy source that doesn't have some kind of trade-off involved is uh, a sheer fantasy. Yeah, and, and just going back to the idea of, I think you said, being excited or amazed by the world, uh, cheap energy is just about the most amazing thing there is in terms of what it what it can do and this is a slightly gross analogy but a friend of mine uh i won't attribute it to him because he might not like it but i think it's it's brilliant the the focus on energy from the perspective of what are its byproducts like is it clean is there any problem is there any hazard? of course there will be with everything but like what if you had a really really unhealthy food but people said oh it's it's clean junk food because you don't we engineer it so you don't have to go to the bathroom afterwards would that make it good food <laughs> No, what's good about food is that it sustains life. Fossil fuels are a good form of energy. Nuclear is a good form of energy. The other stuff right now is junk energy. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I have to work with that one, but that's fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I have lots of lots of derogatory terms in the pipeline. Unreliables instead of renewables. Junk energy. There's there's many negative things. All right, I want to talk about um, in our remaining time the content of the. Um, environmental trends almanac uh not necessarily all the specific statistics but the general trajectory of how we have dealt with you know the different hazards and pollution challenges that are inherent in any form of energy including fossil fuels and including all of life how those have gotten better because many people think they're getting worse yeah that's what started me doing this exercise gosh 20 years ago now is i would read these opinion polls showing that a large majority of Americans, it was often 70% or more, thought that the environment in, in the United States was getting worse, that air pollution was getting worse, water pollution was getting worse. And I knew uh, you know, some of the data, I hadn't mastered it, but I knew that that was actually untrue, that things were improving, in some cases improving quite rapidly. So that's why I started putting together uh, uh, you know, just the basic information on what the trends were. You know, we've essentially eliminated lead, from uh, airborne lead entirely. You know, 
50% reduction in airborne lead. And nowadays, it's mostly an accident if there's airborne lead. Um, we've had uh, a 70% reduction, 7-0 in the sulfur dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to bore people too much with statistics, but I grew up in LA. No, go ahead. <laughs> well, the, the one that I think is you know, really telling is I grew up in the Pasadena area in LA in the 60s and 70s when smog was really awful. Um, you know, I couldn't play outside in the summer afternoons because my lungs would hurt in 15 minutes. And you know, I've gone back and looked, and in those days, uh, Los Angeles uh, violated the, the one-hour ozone standard. Never mind what that is, but they violated the federal standard almost 200 days a year. More than half the, half the year, they were above the standard. Um, they have not exceeded 15 days a year for a decade now. And it's, if you plot the data out, it's just been steadily declining uh, uh, levels of, uh, of smog uh, for you know, 25 years now. And uh, you know, a lot of reasons for this. People say, well, regulation. Yes, regulation is certainly part of the story. However, the real story is improvements in technology. You, know, you can pass any regulation saying make something so, but if you don't have the technology to make it happen, uh, then it's not going to happen. And the roadside, I'd like to say, the environmental roadside is littered with mandates that failed or had to be withdrawn or modified because technology wasn't there. And so you know, I'd like to point out that the real heroes of the air quality story are not environmental lawyers. They're not the politicians in Washington. They've sped some things along. That's true, and we should give them their props. But the real heroes are the engineers, especially at the auto companies, in the electric power sector, in the chemical industry, refining industry, who figured out uh, ways to reduce pollution at a reasonable cost. It hasn't been cheap, but it's been reasonable overall. Uh, and those are the real heroes of the story. And instead, you have the environmentalists like to beat, on, beat each other on the backs and, or pat each other on the backs and say, gee, we did this, and all they did was see a parade going down the street and got in front of it. Because, by the way, it turns out air pollution was starting to decline in the 60s by, uh, by some of the data we have before the Clean Air Act was passed. And why was that happening? A lot of reasons, but one of it was just simple factory efficiency. A lot of people were upgrading their technology, and when you upgrade a technology to use resources more efficiently, one byproduct, often unattended, is you start lowering pollution at the same time. Uh, and so, you know, again, the, the decline in pollution in advanced countries is a function of prosperity and technological innovation itself. Yeah, I think, I think um, it's, there's often a debate about, well, is the market responsible or was government responsible? But I think it's, um, I think it's important to give the, the primary credit. So the market is just an abstraction, but it's individuals doing productive things. And I like how you're giving credit to the individuals doing the uh, productive things. And in that, in that vein, what are some of the most important technological innovations in terms of uh, reducing pollution that, that happened in the 20th century? Yeah, I'll just give you two in cars, which I've studied a lot. Because, you know, the, um, uh, here's the, we were talking about horsepower earlier. Sometimes I will show students a picture of a 1970 Ford Mustang and a, 20, you know, a current model, 2013 Ford Mustang, and I'll say the 1970 Ford Mustang is just sitting in your garage. You haven't driven it in a month. And your brand new one is going down the highway at 60 miles an hour. Which one of those Mustangs is giving out more air pollution? And, of course, most people think, well, it must be the one going down the highway. And, in fact, it's the old one sitting in your driveway with the engine turned off. It emits more pollution than a state-of-the-art car driving down the road with the engine going. Almost nobody knows that. Um, and that is a technological story. And the real reason that the old car uh, emits more pollution is, is you just had gasoline evaporating out the manifolds and the carburetor and from the gas tank. Uh, and, you know, that you didn't need much to create a lot of ozone, and modern cars just sealed everything up. But I've done one more thing, and that was all cars now have fuel-injected engines. They don't have the old-fashioned carburetors anymore, which were inefficient. And, and you know, fuel-injected engines, that, those, that technology had been around a long time, uh, but it was expensive and kind of exotic. And what the, the, you know, the auto engineers figured out is how to make it cheap and more efficient. And, you know, that was a big breakthrough in reducing certain kinds of pollution. And then the other one is, you know, the catalytic converters, which were used to get lead out of, uh, out of emissions and do some other things, too. It lowered carbon monoxide emissions as well. Um, that was a useful innovation, uh, which had to go along with changing the way gasoline was formulated. And as I say, government can, uh, can, can issue mandates and standards and say, here's a target we want you to meet. Uh, but it was the engineers coming along and figuring out, ah, we know how we, we, here's a way you can do that. And some of those things were not anticipated or not foreseen when you were writing the legislation about these matters. 
Man, I'm I'm stealing that story about the Mustang in the garage. That's a well, I guess I'll use your name, but that that's a really good one. I, I, Isn't that fun? <laughs> yeah, because as you were saying it, I was thinking, how is he going to get out of this one? Uh, how is <laughs> how is this going to work? Um, I was afraid you were going to not not be forthcoming with it. Um, to go back to um, an issue we talked about earlier, which is the issue that both in America and, and I mean maybe I can put it this way, that. Pollution or lack thereof is an important issue in life, but it is not the only issue in life. And thus, we have historically and today, for many good reasons, people being willing to put up with, for some time, a certain amount of pollution that's unavoidable or even uh, present for that, just for that matter, because there are other important things in life, like actually having food um, to eat and water to drink. If, if you could put it like a hierarchy of needs, where on the continuum does trying to minimize pollution come? Where, where does that become a, a concern that you can afford and that, that makes sense to focus on? Well, well, that's a very hard question to answer um, because it, you know, it depends on the kind of problem and, and what trade-offs you're going to make. You know, everybody makes trade-offs depending on you know, their own needs and their own situations. You know, for some people... Working in a coal mine, despite its risks and despite uh, often adverse health consequences, that's preferable to not having a job at all or having a, a much lower paying job where your health consequences will, could possibly be worse, right? I mean, we're seeing this in you know, Appalachia with the closing of so many coal mines. That's a, a kind of a tough uh, case on the individual level. On the broader level, there's the, there's the concept that's, um, that's gotten wide acclaim of what's you know, called the environmental Kuznets curve. You know, it's after Simon Kuznets, who back in the 50s, um, you know, worked out how uh, when when economies grow, inequality gets great uh, greater for a while, but then as you get more middle class, inequality tends to drop. That's sort of an, an inverted U-shaped curve. And people figured out, you know what, the environment works that way too. People will tolerate higher levels of pollution while you're accumulating wealth, but then at a certain point, uh, and this seems to be true. Uh, uh, there's been lots of transnational research on this. When you get to, I think the figure is somewhere around five, six thousand dollars per capita income in a country, then you start to see the environment improve. Uh, one is you have more resources to pay for environmental improvement. Second, people then start making the trade-off that you know my life has improved, and now it would improve even more if the air got clearer, and I didn't have to boil my water every day to drink it. Um, and you know that makes perfect sense. It varies for different kinds of pollution problems, but the general figure, as I say, I think is around five, six thousand dollars. And that's sort of the macro level approach to how you weigh these trade-offs. Um, and uh, you, you know, there's a wonderful phrase in uh, you know one of the classic environmental books. It's Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. You know, that's a wonderful lyrical book about the value of the land and you know trees and you know the great things of nature to human beings. But at the very beginning of that book is a wonderful phrase I like, and he said, "All of these wild, wonderful things had little value to us." And before mechanization assured us of a good breakfast. I think that one sentence captures the whole story. That is a sentence right there. Yeah, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a much better version of what the corrupt sentence, a hungry man is not free, is trying yeah. to accomplish. Right. Um, right. Oh, you distracted me from our next question. That's a really good sentence. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, had, I had a good one. Not as good as that. That was good, that sentence. Oh, yeah, because part of the reason... So uh, the last question I asked was, as you mentioned, too broad. But I wanted to bring up the idea of the Kuznets curve um, because you discussed it in your book. And I'm not an expert in it, but one issue that I have with it is it doesn't seem to factor in the pollution or more broadly the danger and health hazards inherent in, in nature. So if I start a, you know, if I start, uh, you know, a farm and a factory and all, all these, you know, all this mechanization, there's a lot of ways in which I'm less, le I don't know all, I don't know the exact, all the, all the numbers, but there's so many ways in which my life is better. And ultimately, you know, if you want to talk about a healthy environment, life, life expectancy is not a bad proxy. Oh yeah, that may be the best proxy. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I went to sort of the micro level with the coal miner and the macro level with the environmental Kuznets curve. Somewhere in the middle, um, you know, you have to you have to start thinking about things about like um, 
you know, yeah, we may be exposed to more hazards. On the other hand, one of the interesting things we're starting to wonder about these days is why are asthma rates going up? Or we're actually not sure they are because we reclassify it all the time. But uh, And it appears, oddly enough, that one reason that asthma rates may be going up, in, especially in the wealthiest countries, is that we've actually made our environments for our children too antiseptic. Mm. In other words, as crazy as it sounds, they're too clean. There may be some thought that there's some autoimmune aspect to certain kinds of diseases we have now, like asthma, because you actually have very low asthma rates in countries like India and China. And it's not pollution. That's not the reason. But it's the fact that, you know what, kids are just around more germs and things, and they roll around the dirt more often, and their body builds up more immunity, you know, broader immunity and more resistance to certain kinds of problems. And so, you know, there's an economic way of looking at pollution, saying that the optimal level of pollution isn't zero, for reasons that you've sort of hinted at. Um, and secondly, the optimal level of clean isn't perfectly clean, possibly. And, you know, this is a controversial area, <coughs> um, but there's, you know, some serious scientific journal articles and medical articles about aspects of this. And, you know, that may be the next thing that we realize is that, in, in fact, that, you know, so the routine insults to our immune system um, actually make us more, robu- more robust and hardier. And this is why some of these crusades for either zero pollution or especially, not no pollution, but zero risk are probably fundamentally mistaken and probably, uh, in fact, on a macro level, increase our total risk, paradoxically enough. Yeah, that's that's fascinating about the asthma because I, I wonder about that because I'll see Greenpeace or some Sierra Club say, hey, in this area like uh, coal, the coal plant is responsible for asthma. And then you look at, well, the coal plant's gotten 10 times cleaner in the past 40 years. So why is the asthma going up? And it's been there. Yeah. And that's, that's fascinating. I guess it also just reinforces the theme of, of progress and ingenuity and technology and that this is exactly, and, and I think in your, your book, it, it implies this a lot that, it, you know, progress is not just, something new comes out and everything works perfectly. It's we're constantly adapting and making new decisions and, and discovering things. And um, there are certain environmentalist prejudices that I think are very counterproductive, such as just any industrial byproduct might be bad. So for instance, they'll never talk about the value of atmospheric CO2 to plants. And, and I'm not saying right. that it's net positive, but they will never even discuss it because there's this premise that, well, if it's man-made, it's it's bad, and that's that seems destructive to exactly the type of thing you're you're talking about, which is a rational, forward-looking analysis. Yeah, and here I think uh, uh, there's a lot of ways to play that. You, you can draw back to what you mentioned was your, your earlier life, I suppose you might say, as a philosopher. Um, uh, you, you're, I, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you're at least passively familiar with, you know, the whole strain of thought that I, I suppose traces back to Heidegger that the problem, the, the real problem here is technology itself and that it separates human beings from nature in some fundamental way. And therefore, that casts a generalized suspicion on any technology, even when you can point out a positive trade-off. So genetically modified organisms are a great example. Um, so we haven't found any frankenfoods yet, you know, some freakish thing that causes babies to grow two heads or something goofy like that. Unlike, say, thalidomide, the, uh, the, tranquil, you know, the sleep aid 50 years ago that caused birth defects and we got rid of very quickly. Um, but... You know, the thought is even if you point out the environmental benefits of genetically modified organisms, you know, fewer plants, less, I mean, uh, fewer, uh, less fertilizer, less water, uh, less need to use pesticides, um, uh, and on and on and on. You can point out massive ones in which the scientific community overwhelmingly supports. People are against it because it's fooling with Mother Nature. By the way, ignoring that tomatoes and corn are genetically modified organisms, right, in the last 500 years. And so the sort of willful ignorance, not just the scientific facts, but you combine that with what to my mind really ends up being a philosophical opposition to progress and technology. And, you know, that actually can't be turned back with just facts and reasoning. But I think that's very deeply seated with a lot of people. It's not everybody, but I think you certainly see that strain at work with an awful lot of people on the environmental left. Yeah, I mean, what I found is at least that that pointing it out to them and isolating those premises for better people will will give them uh, pause. So if I even just make the point I just made about about CO2, and uh, and they'll say, well, yeah, it's, that's interesting that I've never, I never considered that there could be a benefit 
Or, or yeah. if I just point out, you hear that it's warming, you automatically assume warming is bad. Well, most yeah. people throughout history wanted warming. So even if we don't know why, you'd think it was 50-50. I mean, you'd, you'd say I'd have to investigate it, and yet there seems to be a prejudice. And then I start calling it human racism, because if the human race does something, it must be bad. <laughs> if nature does it, yeah. it must be. And, and that has a that is primitive. And, and I think people and the environmentalist movement is a primitive movement, but people see that, but they don't see them. So it's, they don't see the, they don't know that they have a philosophy, which I think is, is the, the thing that's, but once it's, once it's exposed, most people aren't willing to own the philosophy of technology is bad. We shouldn't change. We shouldn't try to change nature for our benefit. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, by the way, you said something important there. It, 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 it's not, there isn't uniformity on the environmental left on this. I mean, I, I found a lot of folks do ponder some of these arguments that, that people like you and I make. It's just, you know, the, the hardcore ones are just dead set against it, and the popular mind tends to be harder to break through to. I do think that there is, and maybe you've seen some of this, I think there is some generational changes underway. Uh, you, you know, I, I recently a bunch of environmentalists got together with a left-wing filmmaker and made a pro-nuclear power movie, you know, Pandora's Promise. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Um, yeah, those but, guys know, I remember... are exceptional. I mean, I'm very happy that those breakthrough guys exist. They are very rare and very welcome. Yeah, no, I've got to know those guys pretty well. But, you know, I remember Jane Fonda outside Diablo Canyon in San Luis Obispo County in the 70s, because I'm that old, unfortunately. And... So is she. Um, and I never thought I would live to see a moment like this where you'd have environmentalists saying, you know, not only do we're for nuclear power, but some of them, a few of them admitting who are older, well, we made a mistake opposing it 30 years ago. Uh, now it's for climate reasons, which, you know, may or may not be goofy, but I never thought I would see something like this. So, I, you know, that gives me a little bit of encouragement that at least some folks aren't completely brain dead and are open to reason. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'd recommend that everyone read their book, uh, love your monsters. I have certain disagreements with them, but I, I cannot stress how happy I am that there is a humanist approach to environmental issues that's very, very philosophical um, coming out of Nordhaus and Schellenberger in, in San Francisco. And it's people who think that, uh, you know, man-made climate impact is a much bigger deal than I do, but they at least approach it in a way that is actually solution-oriented versus saying, hey, let's use... Let's destroy the best form of energy, use the worst, and hope for the best. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah they, how, how those guys get to be so sensible from such a dubious background, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. They're, they're, I, thought, I think Nordhaus has a, has a nuclear uh, background, which helps because you see that. You see, you see the, the opposition to that, I think, is so, to anyone who knows the technology, so transparently irrational. Versus at least with climate, you've got a whole speculative component of how do these feedback loops work and whatnot. Where nuclear, it's mostly just made up stuff of, yeah, I'm going to have a three-eyed fish in my local pond if, <laughs> if right. I have a nuclear power plant um, nearby. Okay, well, um, we are running out of time, but I want to ask, what, what takeaways would you uh, give to our listeners about just fossil fuels and environment and technology and environment? Uh, well, you know, I think I want to recur to uh, a uh, what ought to be a famous um, line from the great English historian Macaulay. And I think it's one of his History of England books or one of those. He said, why is it that, we, that, that when we see nothing but progress behind us, we somehow foresee nothing but ruin ahead of us? I mean, he was sort of criticizing, you know, the doom and gloom mentality of modern times. And I, I think you should take that to heart, right? Uh, you know, the... Uh, um, um, you know, people who foresee gloom and doom from climate or whatever. Uh, and I sometimes raise my hand and say, you know, look at this last century we just went through. We had these, you know, two unbelievably bad wars, World War One and World War Two, and a lot of ancillary stuff that was just as ugly. Uh, you know, nearly brought civilization to the brink of, of destruction twice. And then followed by a Cold War where we were 30, potentially 30 minutes away from wiping out a billion people or, or so right, in the worst case scenario, and yet here we are, and we got past the two world wars, we got rid of the Cold War and shrunk our nuclear weapons, they may come back, but, you know, the point is, is that we've already been through some really bad stuff, and we're, uh, nonetheless, we're still better than ever, right, and it, 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 it seems to me there's a high burden of proof on people uh, to maintain that next time it's going to be different, right, next time 
uh, ruin is really going to come upon us. Uh, well, I think it's only going to come upon us if we listen to people who tell us that. Yeah, the self, the self-fulfilling fallacy, and and it's it's particularly. Uh, I mean, just you know, I I fortunately I was born in 1980, and as a kid, you know through the fall of the Berlin Wall. So I, I never even experienced that. And I'm just so happy that the quote-unquote challenges of our time, if they were even challenges, are challenges that that are technological adaptation challenges, which human beings are demonstrably amazing at meeting, versus say, you have to get go up and fight a war. Like that's not going to end well, no matter what. Versus, yeah, hey, funny. I might have to move or let's figure out a way to cool the climate. Like those are things we can do and, and life can get better. Yeah, that's right. That's why, you know, that's why I say the funny thing about human beings is we get through stuff, <laughs> often bad stuff. Um, so where can uh, listeners find out more about your work? Well, you know, right now, you know, I'm not quite sure I can say right now, I'm, I'm sort of redoing the almanac of environmental trends, which has gone online. Um, and that may be the best source. I don't actually have an operating website right now. You, you can read, I'll just do this plug, uh, you can read my sort of daily thoughts, so to speak, on a blog, on uh, it's the powerlineblog.com. That's all one word, powerlineblog.com. And I write about all kinds of subjects there, but often energy and environmental topics are prominent there. Yeah, we'll, we'll give a link to Steve's work. And he's, uh, among prolific people, he's known as, the prolific one in terms of the ridiculous number of subjects uh, written on from history of Reagan to uh, many, many other things. So uh, we'll link to that. Anyway, Steve, it uh, was great to have you on. Um, hang on for a second after we wrap up. And thanks so much for being here. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Stephen Hayward for coming on uh, the show. I, I remember an anecdote. Um, I think I've met, I've met Steve once in person. I think it's, it's only once. And I remember it was at the American Enterprise Institute uh, talking to some people a couple years ago when I had just started Center for Industrial Progress. And I was, I was interviewing some people at AEI because they're, they're very effective at many things. And I was starting my own think tank, although it would eventually become a for-profit think tank. And I wanted to know, okay, what are the best practices? What are the things I should look out for? What are the things I should learn? Anyway, I was having a conversation with Ken Green, who was the other energy expert there, who's also been on Power Hour. Check out his episode. It's, um, I forget the number, but uh, you should be able to find it on iTunes. Anyway, I just remember uh, there were a bunch of us in the room at one point. Steve stopped by, and there was a just consensus in the room that this guy is a, is a productive machine. And I remember just whenever I, whenever I see that, it's a, it's a good reminder. All right, let's, let's get some work done. This is... You know, if, if you keep, you know, if you keep focused at uh, at your work, you can you can put out a lot of really valuable stuff, and even in his case, uh, valuable stuff among uh, across a variety of fields. So, thought you might like that story. In terms of the the content of the show, I think I pretty much covered during the interview anything I had to say. Make sure to check out the Almanac of Environmental Trends. I could say check out the chapter in my book, uh, which which I hope you will. But also uh, check out for now the um, well, all of the chapters really in my book, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, which you can get now super easily at Amazon. It's shipping on Amazon Prime. I think it's uh, the price is now five fifty. So just you know five dollars and fifty cents. If you have Amazon Prime, you get one copy. You can get as many as you want, um, and that should be super easy if, if you want to get, you know, 100, 200,000 for your community group, for your company, highly recommend that. You can get it, that from us at uh, $5 a copy, so save a little bit. But yeah, I think, I think in terms of a book on the relationship between fossil fuels and environment, I think uh, really... Uh, Humility aside, obviously, I think I think that's that's a go-to. It's gotten a lot of good reviews on Amazon. I hope if you've read it, you write a review. Uh, so don't don't let the fact that the new book is coming out in November and yeah, I, as the author, I'm certainly trying to make it it by far the best thing I've done. But uh, people's minds need changing now, not just in November. So 
I give them that. Also, the moral case for fossil fuels, my essay you can get for free at industrialprogress.com slash moral case, but we're also selling it in bulk on the website. So if you go to industrialprogress.com slash store, you can pick up a bunch of copies, particularly if you're in the energy industry. You know, this is this is an industry that spends a lot of money on communications. Um, you know, we work with a lot of companies on communications. You know, when I advise people, I say, look, you're the most powerful. You can pay us for consulting. You can pay other people for consulting. But if if you can put a really good book, a really good pamphlet in all your employees' hands, that might be the most powerful thing you can do and, and the most powerful first step. So hope to see some uh, orders there. Hope to see some good uh you know, good testimonials. Also, one more thing, if you, um, you know, if you're not part of a company, but you want to see more people read it, we give out a lot of these things. So if, if you want to buy some for us to give out, uh, you know, go to the website or email, email support at industrialprogress.net and we'll hook you up. Okay. I would say sales pitch is over, but I'm going to promote our websites now. Uh, consider a sales pitch but also lots of exciting things to do with your time and, and rather small amounts of money in this case uh, industrialprogress.com make sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter movement most important there's facebook facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy facebook.com slash i love fossil fuels and uh twitter at alex epstein i just challenged someone else to a debate we'll see how that goes i'm guessing it'll get uh, ignored, but it, this is Tom Steyer, who is the, uh, well, I would say he is, he is like a billionaire Bill McKibben. I would say like a slightly less intellectually sophisticated, at least in this, in this realm, but yeah, he's, he's like the, he's like billionaire McKibben, I would say, uh, in the sense of, well, he's a billionaire. He's committed, I think, according to the New York Times, to spending around $100 million on, quote, climate action, which essentially amounts to uh, action to deprive everyone of the affordable energy they need to live, including to uh, thrive in any climate. And you know, I, I don't have much of a sense for him, except he's put out a lot of attack ads. He's become prominent. And you know, I, th I, think he needs, I think he needs to be challenged. He, he, he challenged the CEO, he challenged at least one CEO, the CEO of TransCanada, to a public debate, which I think is pretty disingenuous, not just because the CEOs of companies are not professional debaters, but because they have, it, debates are very hard and it's very easy to get tripped up or, and it's easy for somebody to, to do zingers and gotchas and the, these companies, these are companies worth tens of billions of dollars. They have, you know, there's so much to lose just by saying the wrong thing or by having an awkward uh, video. So you can say that's true of anyone, but, um, you know, for some of us, it's it's our profession. So, of course, anytime I go to debate, say, there's the same risk and I'm, I'm willing to accept it because I believe in the issues and because I, I, I'm trained and, uh, you know, you just got to get out there, but that, that that's my job. So hopefully Steyer, so either I or somebody else who's a professional of field debate Steyer, I realize Steyer is not exactly a professional, but he is, he has become a, a leader, a leading activist. Um, and he is a promoter of a lot of these things and, and he's prominent. So I think he needs, uh, he needs to be uh, taken on. So, uh, and I would, I would be happy to oblige, uh, particularly after May 1st when my, manuscript is is due so Tom Steyer uh, I don't think you've listened to enough uh, power hour which could have perhaps prevented the need for this and, and for sure I mean I'm saying this earnestly I, I doubt that you've been exposed to or or um, sufficiently researched the thoughtful work on the other side. I think it's easy to just go by what you read in the New York Times and subscribe to these morality plays that it's just, you know, there's your side, which is the virtuous people, and the other side is just a bunch of crazy uh, deniers being paid off by fossil fuel companies. But uh, really, the best case scenario would be no debate, would be uh, a more thorough study of the issues and, and more thoughtful I'd say in measured public commentary, uh, but you know if you read it or or if you 
don't want to read it, but you still th you think your view is so definitive, then you know a debate. I think a debate would be uh, a good um, a good option. All right. Let's see. I think that's all we have for the week. Uh, except as usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, and I know who it is. It's Robert Bryce, author of Power Hungry, and he has a new book coming out as well. And uh, first guest ever on Power Hour, a good friend uh, of mine in the energy community, great guy, lots, lots of great material, so that'll be fun. And wow, yeah, the, in, it was January 2011 we had him on. So it's it was three years ago. It'll be fun to have him on again. We will be talking about energy progress and, and what he, he's been following that for the last five years. And I, I should say quite a, quite a bit longer than that. Um, I've been reading him mostly for the past five years, a little bit more than that. Uh, but his, his books, Gusher of Lies, Power Hungry, and now... The one that I do not have in front of me right now, and I, I fortunately got an advanced copy to review, and it has it's it's a little hard to remember because it's it's uh, faster, lighter, cheaper, denser, something. But it's 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 a, an exciting book about uh, technological progress, including energy progress. So that that'll be a lot of fun. All right, next week, Robert Bryce, be there. I'll talk to you then. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.